You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello there, I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Welcome to the show. It's another live edition recorded at the Gilded Balloon at this year's Edinburgh Festival, and I'm talking to a wonderful comedian and a thoroughly nice man, Mr. Alan Davies. Hi, Stuart. Hey, man. Thanks for coming. Thank, a pleasure. Thank you very much. So far. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just briefing Alan before we started on exactly what we're after, and I'm very pleased to see you've brought with you bundles of notes. Brought all my notes of my jokes. Excellent. Um, we're going to be talking, I think probably uh, to begin with, we're going to be talking about the show uh, that you've just done. You, last night was your first night. Yes. Here in Edinburgh. Life is pain. Yes. <laughs> um, certainly was this morning. When I yeah. <laughs> Um, who here, have we got people in who saw that show last night or have seen it in preview? We've got some people in there. Fantastic. Um, so talk us through how last night was and let's, uh, let's get stuck in from there. How, how was it for you? That was your first well, one at the end of the festival. I was very nervous about it. Okay. Uh, I was in the loo seconds before going on stage. <laughs> okay. It's at the conference centre, so it's quite a long walk from the loo to the stage. <laughs> so I was relieved to have evacuated before I had to make that. <laughs> journey. Uh, I found it okay. I was uh, a little bit slow starting. Uh, I couldn't really get any real fluency. I like to come on and interact. Mm-hmm. And, but if you're very nervous, that's very difficult. Yeah. And, and I saw, so I talked to them a bit. Um, I did a thing that I did years ago. This is really cheap where I say, are there any Scottish people in? Yeah. And they say, yes. And then I say, are there any English people in? And they always cheer more loudly. Yes. And then uh, the Scottish people are pissed off <laughs> and want to have another go. And that's quite a nice sort of icebreaker. And then I talked to them a bit about Team GB and the Olympics, and I thought I'd get somewhere with that. Okay. Um, I talked to them about the even in the midst of all this success, uh, an Englishman still missed a penalty in the football. <laughs> but they didn't seem remotely interested. Yeah. <laughs> In that at all. <laughs> and I thought, because I, I had a tweet from a Scottish person saying, I was, I've, just, I've just been crying with laughter at the, at the Fitba. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, yeah, the Scots, of course, they didn't want to be in the team, and now they're bound to think it's hilarious. The penalty. I'll do that at the yeah. start. And they all looked at me like, not, in, not bothered about that. Don't. So I just got on with my act pretty much straight away. That's, that's <laughs> interesting. What, what, sort of, what capacity is the room that you're doing? How many people are we talking uh, about? 1,200. 1,200. So this is, a, this is a big, big show you're doing. Mm. And it's interesting uh, to me to hear that even in that sort of a show, you need to, of course, why, why wouldn't you need to pay some attention to exactly how you break the ice? Yeah, yeah. Because I... I it's the... as much breaking the ice for yourself as it is for them. Yeah. It's as much about getting comfortable and being funny for yourself. Because even after all these years, you still wonder if you're going to be funny when you go on a little bit. I've had a long break away sure. from it, you know. The other thing that happened was when I did the sound check earlier in the day, a technical rehearsal, which you'd think would just be, oh, the microphone works and they can see me, but it's a bit more than that. Mm. And we had a black curtain behind me like we have here. And, uh, <clears throat> and then just as I was leaving, they opened the curtain and there's a... A psych behind, which is a white, plain white background. It's called a psych at the back of the stage, and it gave the stage more depth. And I thought, if I put some colour on that, that would just be, it just looks nicer from the back of the room. Sure. Um, so I went with that option. And, but I hadn't seen the effect that that had on the auditorium. With the black curtain, there's no bounce from the lights, and so you can't see anything. Right? Oh, but, okay. uh, you can see the front row. Normally I like to see a bit, but I don't want to see everyone. Sure. And <laughs> when, it, when I went on, the light was bouncing off the psych and I could see fucking everyone. I could see wow. like, 
600 people and I still honestly there were about three people um, who did not crack a smile for the entire hour and you remember only those three I could pick them out of a lineup. yeah you know I could pick them out of a lineup in a year's time yeah because you keep going back to the, in, in, in a yep. sort of sea of movement some people are fantastic audience members they meet you more than halfway you know they're animated all the time and they really laugh a lot. I mean, I did say at one point in the show, someone, I saw someone laughing and they put their hand over their mouth when they laughed and I told them off for that because it's not the sort of laughing I want. Sure. <laughs> but that's so, I don't know what I'm going to do tonight, whether I'm going to have the black curtain in. Yes. <laughs> or the psych, I know, I don't know. Do you, do you have, have you ever had any, any strategies, any mental ways of coping with seeing people in the audience who aren't enjoying it? Because there's always, in, no matter how big a crowd, no matter how much they're enjoying it, there'll always be at least one person who doesn't seem to. Oh, yeah. And the I danger as a comic is to become fixated on them. Yeah, well, you just do become fixated on them anyway. <laughs> there was one old lady who just obviously thought I was a twat, you know, and I, heard, <laughs> and I thought, right, you aren't, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get, if you don't laugh at my anal sex material. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Millican was saying, uh, I interviewed Sarah Millican for the show, and she was saying that she has a little thing she thinks to herself. If she sees someone not enjoying themselves, she thinks, oh, they've probably got bad teeth. Because there's just some, some people, if they've got bad teeth, they don't like to open their mouth and laugh, and they might be enjoying it. And just, mm, like this. I always assume that they've been brought along yes. by their partner. Sure. And, in, and what they're doing is they're signalling their resentment to their partner by refusing to participate in the evening. <laughs> right? And there was one man in about row four or five, and I thought, I was looking at him every now and then, I thought, you've been brought, your wife loves me. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> 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 and so, ergo, you hate me, right? Yeah. So that's why you're looking at me like that. That's going on in my head. Yeah. The things that go on in your head while you're doing your act is quite interesting, I suppose, if you're not a comedian, but you, you know what it's like. You are thinking a different set of things than the things that you're Completely. saying. Yeah. You know, so you say, because you've said the things you're saying many times before. Um, but what you're thinking is different every night. You know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, so going on, you, I mean, did you notice that with the, the, the audience were lit, presumably, as soon as you walked on, you yeah, went, Yeah, I thought, oh, oh shit, hello. I can see them. <laughs> they can see me, now we've had it. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think from the perspective of an audience member, watching, going to see someone in an event, going to see someone as famous as you, as well-respected and loved as you, in a, in a huge venue, there's a huge weight of expectation. And uh, I think it's interesting that you still have to do this ice-breaking process because when I've been to see acts, I, like if you go and see Rod Gilbert, he does a, a similar kind of, you know, there's a certain amount of are we well, which seems that sort of post-McIntyre has become the way to say, how are you? Is now right. everyone goes, are we well? Uh, yeah, yeah, they do. That's, that's become very, very common on the circuit at the oh, moment. But there's, that. you do need that. <laughs> <laughs> but you do need a certain amount of, um, of, uh, of getting up and running and proving to yourself that you're funny, like you said, and proving to them. I, I mean, in my mind, I always think I need to prove to them that I'm not just funny because of the stuff I've written and brought with me. I'm actually a funny person. Well, I, I used to think that... The, the, a gig was a better gig if it took me longer to get to the start in the act. Yeah, okay. I used to think, oh, I've done 10 minutes, 15 minutes here, I haven't started the act yet, everyone's laughing, mm. this is going to be great. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but nowadays, now I've come back to it, I, tend, I don't really think that so much. I, I like my new show, I like doing the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, when I start touring, and I'm going on tour from the beginning of September right up to Christmas, and there's 50-odd dates, but probably about halfway through that, I'll be thinking, oh, I don't want to do that routine tonight. I'm going to dick about for ages at the start <laughs> and see if I can get something going. And by then, I'll be very familiar with the material and I'll have yeah. a rhythm and a flow. Uh, one of the other problems I have with the show here is that it's cut down from 90 to 60 minutes. And so some of this stuff is quite personal stuff about my family or upbringing or mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And to get into that early is tricky. Yes. What I would normally do is I'd, my time with other material mm -hmm. it's still in a similar vein but it's not so personal it's a, um, at the top and then but the, then I've got them we're into it it's great it's all working out you know, hopefully and then I do the meat of the show later mm -hmm. and, and in fact if I was doing a, a tour show I'd have an interval because most venues demand it sure um, 
and then I'd do the real juicy, really funny stuff in the second half. So mm. you get in, in a two-half show, unless you've got an hour and a half of belting material, you dump the weaker stuff at the start, and then people have forgotten it by the time they go home. You know, <laughs> so they come out into the interval. And think, well, that was all right. It was, I don't know. It's okay, I suppose. I go and see. I saw Dave Allen in 1991, and I okay. saw it in, in the West End of London, and he did. After the first half, I went to the bar and I thought, oh, I might watch the second half, I'll see. It was pretty good. It was okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a huge fan of his. And then I, I watched the second half from the back of the theatre, leaning against the kind of fence at the back of the seats. And it's the funniest hour of stand I've ever seen still to this day. Okay. I mean, my face was hurting. Everyone, I looked around, people were weeping, holding themselves, <laughs> clutching each other's knees, laughing. <laughs> He just took them on a journey. Mm. And I, I had the privilege of interviewing him later. He, and he said, you have to be careful with an audience. You mustn't make them laugh too much. And I love the idea. <laughs> He's got such mastery of the craft. He's looking at them going, I'm going to stop you laughing now. because." Yeah. And he did tell me that someone did once break a rib <laughs> oh my from God. laughing at one of his shows. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I suppose that, that is, that's, has echoes of how someone on the circuit would put together a 20-minute set for use at a, a commercial club on a Friday or a Saturday night. There are certain rules that go into which material you decide to do when. Or not rules, maybe, but one might have one's own rules. Like, you've got to be, you've got to be, like, traditionally you would put your second funniest bit of material at the top to win them. I did a comedy club in Canada in uh, 1989 or something. I was very, very young and inexperienced. And I got a gig emceeing at Yuck Yucks in Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> we all know it. We're all big fans and, of Yuck Yucks uh, in Winnipeg. The Yuck Yucks chain is one of those uh, that tip your waitresses kind of comedy chains. Yes, they have, a, they have a peculiar rule, which is that you're not allowed to gig at any other comedy club in Canada. There, if that's you're a Yuck, if yuck, you're yuck, 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 you have yeah. to be signed up, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, I opened up with this plan. I met this guy as a comedian. And his advice to me was, start with your second best line, finish with your best line. Mm-hmm. And I thought... I, I haven't got any lines, really. I don't really do lines. <laughs> <laughs> and what I started to do, what I found when I was on the circuit, was I used to think, I've got to start well, get something, get it going early, mm. so they're on your side. Mm. And, then, and, and then I started to think, actually, everyone's really gaggy, and I, I'm going on and doing stuff early, and it's not really taking, because it's so different from other... So I used to actually kill time a bit at the start, and allow, uh, to allow them to tune into my voice, if you like. It's almost like there's a dial on a radio, you know. Mm. And so I would walk about and say, all right, how are you? Good, excellent, just limbering up. And uh, then I'd say, um, don't go think, I'm not shit, I just haven't started yet. I just started, oh, this is how I work, this is how I know who starts work as soon as I arrive, you know, and I do yeah. stuff about, I'll go, I'm going to go in the toilet in a minute and read the paper for half an hour. And yeah, then, yeah. You know, and then so I'd open slowly like that and then but obviously it's essential that the the last sort of 10 15% of your show whatever length it is is hilarious yes. it must be hilarious at the end yeah. <laughs> if you've bought all that time building if up it's for it. really hilarious and this is what the great thing with Dave Allen was you can be really hilarious and then the last four or five minutes you're on stage you can be letting the air out of the balloon and folding it up putting it in a bag and sending everyone out into the street kind of sated yes um, I'm not I don't want to run off I think right, good night and then run off and listen for the encore yes, I'd, sure. I'd rather wrap it up and finish tight up with a neat bow and mm. go Americans have a, I've noticed in a lot of the American comedy albums I've listened to there's a tendency to almost like it almost feels like it's halfway through their best bit of material they'll just go you know, Winnipeg or wherever. You've been great, thank you. And it goes, wow, it goes mental like that. And they, and I've always, they, they'd never have that kind of coming down process. That's no, quite trying to engineer the encore. Right, it's right. a very common thing. It's to be hilarious. Some of the comedians I used to work with were real. Who used to do it? Rob Newman was a great one for doing it. For, for strategically manipulating the encore. encore. No, yeah. Rob Newman, he's a great, fantastic comedian, you know. Mm. But when he started, uh, he used to do impressions. And they were superb impressions. I mean, kind of your bog standard Ronnie Corbett, this kind of thing, but still, still very, very, very funny. But when he got a massive laugh with one, he'd say, Good night! And then run off, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the audience would go, More, more impressions! And then he'd come back like a conquering hero, and everyone would roll their eyes and go, Oh, Rob, you don't need that. But, you know, it's a long time ago now. But. I, uh, I made a mistake with someone on the, on this, on the UK circuit, a guy called uh, Dominic Frisbee, who's a fantastic actor. We were doing a gig together in, in Plymouth. 
and uh, I was comparing and I was very, very new. And he had he was having such a good gig, he'd cut his 30 down to 20 so that he could encore with his 10. <laughs> so he finished far too soon. And I walked up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, Dominic Frisbee. And everyone went, and I went, that's all we've got time for. Good night. And clo- <laughs> closed the show and he sort of stood up and looking at me afterwards, <laughs> tapping his foot. Yeah, that's so, the danger of, on- of doing an encore. Is it, well, have you got anything left? <laughs> you know? Alan is really tremendous. He's, he's actually he's one of the first comedians I remember becoming a household name for being a straight stand-up I, when I first got into comedy when I was a kid. Um, I've seen the, the hour-long version of the show we're describing, and it is superb. I, I was lucky enough to see it in, in front of a very small audience <laughs> because the room was small. I don't mean it was... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but what I mean is it was a very, very intimate setting at uh, the Phoenix in Cavendish Square where the brilliant Tiffany Stevenson and uh, Phil Nickel organised old rope on Mondays which is one of the best uh, pro act doing new material nights in London um, so yes that's the Phoenix and I I, I saw Alan's show there just before we uh, came up uh, to the Edinburgh Festival and it really is it's just superb it's so good um, he's on tour at the moment until Christmas doing the, the, the elongated version the proper version we should say uh, and I also noticed he's doing the Hammersmith Apollo in February next year so uh, I hope you can still get tickets for that uh, there's no official website as far as I can see but I'm sure you can Google up uh, whatever tickets you require and you can also follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Davies one uh, sorry no Addy van der Borg as advertised uh, had some technical problems there Hopefully we'll get you. We'll get the chance to bring you that interview soon. Um, next week, I'm hoping to have Mark Mayer on the show, an excellent comedian based in London, with whom I first gigged in Monte Carlo, because that's very much how I roll. Uh, which reminds me, <laughs> which reminds me, um, uh, comedianscomedian.com backslash new hack. Uh, the uh, that's how I roll is what reminded me of that. Um, so uh, any other submissions there, please bung them up there. Thank you for your emails. Uh, it seems everyone's in favour of the stings. Very much appreciated. If you hate them, now's your chance to email in because uh, everyone so far has enjoyed them very much. Um, and of course, check comedianscomedian.com backslash blog for links to all of my guests on YouTube and their Facebook pages and websites and so forth if you're too lazy to search for them yourselves. Um, is that everything? Yes. At ComComPod, if you're on Twitter, give us a shout-out, tell your followers, tell your friends if you enjoy the show. Uh, remember, I, I'm confident that any comedian that wants to know about this probably knows about it now. Um, so remember, if there's any real humans out there who are maybe creative people, writers, musicians, anyone like that, or comedy fans, uh, if you know amongst your, uh, amongst your followers or your fan base or chums or family or people next to you on a bus, uh, just... Just nudge them about this, tell them about it, really appreciate it. And that's all the stuff. Uh, now back to Alan Davies. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So how does, your, how does your show end? I don't mean in terms of material, but the show you're doing at the moment. What's your, what's your route out of it? Are you trying Filth. To... Filth. Okay. It ends with filth. Uh, what's essential, especially now in my time of life, is I only do things in the show that I think are funny. And, and it ends with the things that I think are really funny, but that you couldn't really open with. Okay. Because they're just too filthy. I've just remembered they're exactly filthy, which bit you mean yeah. now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with my best joke at the moment, and um, which I came across on stage most of the... Always the same way, really, in all the old shows I used to do. All the funny bits of the funny lines were... were came up during a gig one night. Okay. And so the show expands the more you do it. And mm. then, uh, 
because I've never written written a joke onto a blank bit of paper. Okay, well let's let's you talk know. about that. Let's talk about the the writing process. You oh. just to put it in context, obviously you were doing a lot of stand up ten years ago, and you were doing big rooms, and you were really at the top of your game. Mm. And then you stopped doing stand up. I mean, I, I sort of people can find out probably quite a lot about these decisions from other interviews with you, which isn't really what we're. We're yeah. specialising in now, but just to put it in context, what, why exactly? Well, I, what, I, I left university in 1988 with the sole intention of being a stand-up comedian, having tried it a, a little bit. And then I gigged, went onto the comedy circuit and started doing open spots. It was very small in London in those days, only about 25 clubs. All of them run by enthusiasts, nurturing mm -hmm. their little venue. All of them individually booking the acts and trying, watching the open spots themselves before mm -hmm. deciding whether they'd... And at that time, Eddie Izzard had just started, Sean Locke had just started, Stuart Lee had started the year after me. It was a little bit like school in that, you know, you, you knew what year you were in, according yes, to... Yes, absolutely, that's the still intake, the case. You know, yeah. and I, I remember Bill Bailey was going very strongly with the Rubber Bishops, but he didn't go solo till 93, in which it was a bit like going back to the bottom of the class, you know, mm. coming up again. Uh, Harry Hill started a couple of years after me. Joe Brand had already begun, so she was in a couple of years above, <laughs> you know. And Mark Thomas was around, Lee Evans was around, and uh, it was a very, uh, David Baddiel, Rob Newman, and lots of, lots and lots of people who you'd known, and mm. Hattie Hayrish, Jenny Eclair, Jenny Lacote was doing lots of gigs. So it was a great circuit, and it was really exciting, and I was on it for five years, and I loved it, and I made lots of friends then, who some of them came to my wedding, you know, 20 years later, and sure. it was a real camaraderie. Then I started to do telly, and then, then I could get bigger rooms, and then I was on my own, and that was okay, but it wasn't the same. And it, if I was doing Jonathan Creek for five months, it meant I wasn't gigging for five months, yeah. which meant I wasn't turning over material. So then I think, I can't do new stuff without doing gigs. I can't turn over stuff. That was the only way I'd ever worked, was to go on stage with an idea, with a story, a thought, talk about it, mm -hmm. and it became a thing. And it mm -hmm. became a routine. And sometimes I'd have to find a real moment. I used to tell this story about when I worked in a warehouse when I was a student, and I was a drama student, middle-class drama student, you know, from suburban Essex. And I went to this warehouse in Stratford, very close actually to where the Olympic Park now is. It's probably on top of <laughs> the old <laughs> warehouse, right? Um, in Stratford. And all the guys in there, working class uh, kids, many of them from Stratford. So I didn't fit in at all in there. A couple of days with them. But I enjoyed it. Enjoyed uh, mainly just sat and listened to all the banter and the jokes. Well, it was fell for a couple of practical jokes that still to this day I don't know how I but, uh, <laughs> I guess one of them was uh, right you're going to go in a van you're going to take all these coat hangers around to such and such a sweatshop in the east end so the van driver goes to me alright you get in the van I'll pass the boxes up to you so I got in the van and then him and his mates just started throwing boxes of coat hangers <laughs> in to, to the point where I was just under a pile of boxes of coat hangers. And then uh, I, they could hear me. They couldn't see me after a while. And I go, ah, well, you have to climb out. And I had to climb out over the top. <laughs> oh, they were pissing themselves. And they gave me a cup of hot tea. Do you want a tea? Thanks. Yeah, they gave me the, it was the mug with no handle on. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All that sort of thing. And then they said, right, you're the driver's mate, okay? This is a driver. He's called Barry. And off I went, and I was the driver's mate for the day. And I told this story, a new material night, mm -hmm. and uh, no laughs. And I thought, this is fucking funny. It's funny. I know it's funny. It's a fish out of water. It's just kind of stranger in a strange land. If this was a novel, this would work, right? This mm -hmm. is funny. <laughs> Why is it not funny? And a Bob Boynton, who was a, good, who was a comedian... Uh, uh, it was around a lot that time. He writes a lot now. He said to me, you should do that. He started, it's like that, Bob. He said, you should do that stuff because that's about you. It's about you. In the end, the audience want to know why you're up there and that's about you and your life and that's really interesting. It was nice and it was, it was brave of you to tell that story because, you know, you look a prick. <laughs> 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 so he told me to persevere with it and I still remember that a bit of advice. And then one day I was on stage and I said, uh, this is the driver, Barry. Barry, this is... Uh, and that... And that got a laugh. And I said to the audience here, everyone in the place said two names. It was like, Barry, Barry, Steve, Steve, get Dave, Dave. <laughs> it was, it, that became the gotcha. hook. Okay. So that got a laugh, doing that thing about the names. And then once I had a laugh from it, it meant I, it was legitimate to tell the story. Sure. And then once I start telling the story, then other things would... I, it settled, eventually it settles into a routine where it's the same each time. And it became one of my 
best routines, one of my banker bits of material mm. that I did in my show. I think I did it in the show when I was nominated for the Perrier and it was one of the best bits, you know. But it started from just dead in a room. And, but, and actually, I think if I hadn't had someone older and wiser telling me to persevere, I might have dropped it. Yeah, yeah. I think um, that process of uh, having, a, having a laugh that justifies the idea for a routine and then mm. being able to grow things around it Mm. That's that's definitely one of the one of the main ways I think someone a comedian can make material. I mean, you're saying you never you never wrote anything down. No. Or, I mean, did you make notes to remind you of stuff that worked, or was yeah, it yeah. all totally in your head? Well, what I found when I was coming here, I found a notebook from 20 years ago. Amazing. Um, um, which is Scott Ann Davis eight oh six nine five two three, which must have been my phone number at the time, <laughs> um, but I don't remember that. Uh, and it's just a spiral-bound notebook, and in it there are set lists: um, driving, cycling, train jump, student credit, warehouse, driver's mate, blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> always, always get the filthy stuff. In always there, finish yeah. on the fill. And the blowjob joke was used to be about a blowjob blow job slammer where you'd have salt and lemon. <laughs> and it would be like... <laughs> <laughs> Which used to get a really big laugh, didn't you? <laughs> so, and I did it up here, and Kim Kinney used to book the acts at the comedy store. He was working for Scottish television. He's a little um, Scottish gay fella, very funny little bloke. And he goes, will you come on my show? I'm doing a show, will you come on? I said, uh, yeah... He goes, I want blowjob slammer. <laughs> <laughs> I said, all right, I'll do it for you. Because uh, it's you, Kim. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, there's another one here. Trains, granny knitting, work shopping, grid, stroke Spock, Starsky, invisible, favourite Olympic sport, Manchester Olympics, 10,000 metres high jump, Bruno, national, beer stroke sex. <laughs> we were all hoping there at the end where's the blowjob yes, at the end yeah. and that's, that's got brackets 45 at the bottom so that was a 45 minutes that, that was a okay. long one yeah. and so but these you weren't writing in these books so much as planning the list but your set list just before set list. you went on oh okay. it's a set list yeah and that, and that was how I would do it and I, and I would quite often I'd write the set list on the palm of my hand as well but not usually look at it but I, and I'd always have this notebook in my back pocket yeah I couldn't go on I still to this day I can't go on stage without a set list and it, it's to the point where it's like a superstition that what yeah. will happen if I'm out then I forget everything yeah I need it there yeah. but at the same time you can't get it out of your pocket and look at it <laughs> So you never can use it, but it has to be there. It's, uh, do you yeah. have other superstitions? Someone told me that, I'm sure I read somewhere, that Joe Brand went on stage with a piece of green tissue, the same piece of green toilet tissue paper in her back pocket for eight years. Really? Yeah. She, she'd had some bad gigs, and then she had one good gig, and she was going, why did that work? It must have been this. It was the and it, it's such an ethereal thing. It's so, you know what I mean, that could run away from you, that you, you, you daren't ever try not having it. That's it. No, I've got one here, look, 14.494, store. Oh, wow. The comedy store. Wow. Warehouse, stroke, student, credit. And I've ticked them all. Why have I ticked it? It must have gone well. <laughs> Charity, driver's mate. There he is, the driver's mate. <laughs> Beer, stroke, sex survey. I have no memory of that material at all. Shopping. Who's young? No, don't know what that means. Starsky and Hutch, that was a good routine. <laughs> Work, blowjob. <laughs> So this, so this notebook that would always be in your pocket, that was a set list notebook. Were you in the habit of making notes in a notebook when you just sort of went around through life? If something occurred to you, you'd write it down? I was never organised enough to have a notebook on me all the time. I mean, that really would um, be really organised. That's much too organised <laughs> for me. And so um, I would quite often, though, be, I have to say, I said, I've got a pen, you know, because especially in the early days, if you thought of anything or heard anything funny, you have to write it down immediately or you will forget it. Yeah. And then you'll hate yourself for forgetting it because yeah. the, the quest for material is, is like panning for gold. You know, if you, don't, if you saw a bit and you didn't get it, mm -hmm. you, oh, no, you must, must never ever forget it. So you must always write it down, always, always. My wife writes children's books and she quite often tells me anecdotes about places she worked when she was younger or things that her grandparents said or whatever it is. And I always say to her, write it down, write it down, write it mm. down. This is really... Uh, she doesn't write it down. Uh, sells a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> but I absolutely... So quite uh, at home, I've got scraps of paper and bits of 
envelope and beer mats and you know anything mm. where I've had sometimes I've gone to the bar and pubs more than once because quite often you'll be in a conversation with friends when something funny comes up something starts to happen and you think oh that could be and you go to the bar so you've got a pen and a paper here and and get that down nowadays so um I put it in my phone yeah so what I did for the current show because what I used to do always was I would gig and then turn over the material as I gig but when I came to do the current show I wasn't gigging and I hadn't gigged for years okay and I and I thought and my, a good friend of mine Marnie Fowlis who's in this very room uh, is a, a producer and promoter in Australia mm -hmm. has been nagging me for years to go and tour in Australia why don't you come to Australia I have relatives in Australia and I've been there many times and uh we were doing QI live in, in Australia. Mm -hmm. Stephen Fry and I went down there. And said, Are you coming to Australia anyway? Do some gigs. And I said, Oh, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> got any show. And don't, big anywhere, don't book anywhere really big. Book the State Theatre in Sydney, 2,000 seats. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the fucking Palladium. Right? Okay. I mean, it's a stunning place. I'm in the, dressing, in the changing room, dressing room, whatever you call it. Don't normally have one, do we? So we don't know what they're called. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a poster of James Brown on the wall. I think James Brown's played here. This is wrong in so many ways. But it was, it was great. You know, it was fantastic in the end. But to get that show ready, so I knew these dates were coming. This was in November okay. 2011. And uh, I started getting ready in August. And I got the notes here. Okay, so you're saying this is this was the first draft? Did you? This is. Here, I'll get them out and read them out to you because they're so unfunny that you won't believe. <laughs> it's a pity only three people here have seen the show. <laughs> you probably might think that the show is about as funny as this. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> what I did is I've got twelve bits of A4 in my hand, which are tight. You can see they're quite densely tight. You've obviously sat down and typed these. I was going to say, does that? So this was a change in your process from just well, kind of. Well, what it is, rather than sitting down and typing them, what I do is I type notes in my phone. Mm -hmm. So I've got my phone with me now, and I've got notes even now. There are notes for what I hope will be the next show. So what I do now is I don't put new material in the show. I save new material for the next show. Okay, okay. The show's yeah. done now. Sure. For better or worse, it's done. Sure. I'm not putting anything new in it because I need it. Yes. <laughs> I need it for later. Yep, I know that. Right? Yep. So I'm not putting anything new in this one. <laughs> uh, so I've got that. Here's a note here saying, where are the coaches? And that is hilarious to me because that is a friend of mine. I went to the World Cup with him in Germany and we came out of the ground and he was getting on a coach and he went up to a German policeman and said, where are the coaches? And he didn't even realise he'd done it in a German accent. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I'm hoping, will become material. Um, there's a little bit about breastfeeding, um, slag, or in quotes, that's not natural. Old days, get off the bus, exclamation mark. Now people still say, whoa, exclamation mark, right in front of me. So that <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. That will be material in the sure. forthcoming uh, 2014 tour. Yeah, isn't that isn't that an odd way round to do it? I've, I've spoken to a lot of my guests about this. When you're planning to produce an hour or, or more, oh. a, a new show every year that you're certainly for someone on the circuit, as I am, which is just sort of means going, you know, making bread and butter you know, making money out of commercial gigs at, you know, sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. And you find yourself perpetually having to run new stuff in. You have to save, like you were saying, you have to save new ideas from the thing you're doing to make the thing that you're going to do. And as a result, your year becomes like a year-long process of writing an hour in which for someone on the circuit... Uh, you need to be doing gigs that you need to be doing well at, but you also need to be shoehorning in new stuff yeah, so totally. that you can run it in. Well, the process was different in, uh, in the 90s. For me, in 94, for example, you know Edinburgh's coming and you want to do well in Edinburgh, you want to make a splash. In those days, it was the Perrier Award that really got you noticed and you only had one shot at it. Mm. If you were nominated, that was you done. You could never win it again. Mm -hmm. It was a harsh but world. And I came, and you knew this was coming, so you knew you needed 60 minutes of banker material. That's how you think as a stand-up. There wasn't any thought about, oh, this year I'm going to do a kind of themed show about cooking or something. No, you just did the best 60 minutes you had. Mm -hmm. So during the year, you'd be doing 20-minute sets everywhere, 
and if you had stuff that worked really well, you just bank it. You might mm. drop doing it because you're putting new stuff in, yeah. but you would just bank it. Or if you'd write, it's, not, it's like studying for a year and then at the end you're doing final exams. You know, you're revising. Yes. So you think, oh, great, I can keep that. I'll keep that 10 minutes. That's good. I've got this. And then by the time it gets to April or May, you're thinking, I've got loads. Mm. This is going to be all right. But actually, in 94, when I came up, I had about 50. Okay. And I went on with 50, thinking, mm. by the end of three weeks, I had 75. Okay. Because it's just doing it every night doing a full show every night was a privilege that you don't normally get. You know? Yeah, sure. You just don't get that. What I'm in the position now where I can book the studio theatre close to my house. I've got two small children, right, so I can't just go and gig everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. I've got to be at home a lot. And, uh, and I want to be at home a lot too. So I booked the Pleasance studio in Islington, which is five minutes on my push bike from my front door. Mm-hmm. And it's a room about this size. And they can put it on their website, Alan Davis Work in Progress, and 50 people will come, pay a fiver, and sit and stare at you while you read your notes. <laughs> okay. And that is the process. Sure. And when I, well, I, I've got this app on my, or not app, whatever you call it, on my computer. I plug my phone in. It's called Phone View. Mm-hmm. All the notes just appear on the screen, and I just drag them across okay. into Word. And, end, and when I printed all the notes off, gotcha. I ended up with 12 pages of stuff. Which I'd accumulated, and then it was about ordering it. So, and then I would go on with these, and I'd highlight certain bits. Some of them have just never worked. Like this one is: it says preferences on booking a seat facing the stage, facing away, window, aisle, a table. I'd like to meet people. Go to Rome, not Chippenham. <laughs> you don't have to laugh. Don't even try. <laughs> Nothing funny happened then. But I used to make. I used to think it was funny that when you went on the website to book a train, it said preferences. Yeah. You think preferences? Yeah. No one else on the train. Yeah. Or someone fit, or someone interesting, or a hot meal, or so what are your preferences? And it, it just never worked. No one but ever it, laughed it, at it. It wasn't funny. Dropped it. Just, just to use, uh, <laughs> just to use that one as an example. You, you would just write. You just write those words. You write preferences, train, window, aisle, seat, and then you'd go on stage. And would you, when you say you'd read it out, I mean, you presumably would you have the notes right in front of you? Hold them in my hand as I am now. Yeah. Okay. So you would just talk around the idea. Would you improvise a lot around it, or would you? Well, just I try of... and make it funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That's the secret. What? That's it. And the, and the thing is, so there are ways of trying to make things funny. There's a comedian called, <laughs> called Andy Kindler. Are you Andy Kindler? I don't know Andy, no. American comedian. And he does a, every year, Montreal, <laughs> we've been to Montreal Comedy Festival. I have not been. Montreal Comedy Festival is um, a real trade fair. I mean, yeah. It's a serious yeah. trade fair. It's, uh, most of it is centred around this hotel, called, or it was in 95 when I went, called the Delta Hotel. And in the mm-hmm. Delta Hotel, lots of comedians stay, and lots of industry people, agents, television people, uh, from right across North America. And if you make a splash at Montreal, you can get yourself, you might get yourself a sitcom development deal. Mm-hmm. Virtually every comedian in America is in sitcom development hell, you know, mm-hmm. as they trawl desperately for the new Seinfeld. And uh, don't find him. And, and uh, some of them are extremely cynical about, you can imagine, comedians generally are quite, a tendency to uh, being a bit of a maverick, um, liking to think of themselves as an outsider. Cynicism is part of that makeup. Mm. And to, to be surrounded and pandering to a corporate environment causes a huge amount of resentment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And what they used to do, there were two rival groups of comedians who would do a Montreal newsletter every day. This is before the internet. The Montreal newsletter, which you could pick up from the information desk in the the Delta Hotel, and they would be slagging each other off, and all this was going on. Anyway, Andy, in the hotel, they have seminars. There might be the future of the sitcom, or the future of the chat show, or television and comedy. Can they ever work together? You know, this kind of thing. And industry people would go along. Andy Kindler would book the seminar room, and he'd do a seminar called How to Be a Hack Comedian. Twelve o'clock, and you'd go. And I went to it, and the room is full of every comedian in Montreal. <laughs> okay. There's only comedians in the room. <laughs> and he starts, and he's got three or four friends. They're all very funny. And he starts to talk about it's giving you tips on how to make your piss poor material work. And I can almost guarantee there isn't a single comedian in the room who didn't at some point cream. One of the tips is if if the joke isn't very funny, just go louder at the end. <laughs> 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 
from watching others or just because it turns out that for a human being faced with a room of other human beings trying to make them laugh there are things that inevitably happen yes yes there, okay. are, there are vocal moments so if you just speak in the form of a joke format with a punchline you can get a laugh just sure, like that sure. you know just by the rhythm of speech the volume the pitch of speech the sounds the voice makes leads an audience up and down and here and there and gets the, the so you apply some of these techniques to your notes and then some of the notes fly, right? <laughs> some of them work. Well, then the process of filtering that for yourself is dependent on, I feel, from my, my personally, is on what makes me laugh, you know? Yes. Um, I watch other comedians and I watch them and I laugh at the material and I think I would never do that material. Even if yes. I thought of it, I wouldn't do that material. But Christ in the park, I'd love to sell that many tickets. You know? Yes, okay. So how, how do you mean? What sort of material are you describing? What broadly, what sort of thing? If you say you'd never do that, um, well, I might have done it in the past, but I wouldn't want to do it now. I think is the point. Okay. Um, the kind of more day-to-day -day observational stuff, like um, uh, Michael McIntyre on Live at the Apollo, mm -hmm. did a hilarious routine. I mean, the audience were falling about about buying shoes and trying on shoes in the shoe shop. Sure and putting the shoes on and pressing pressing around the shoes, pressing your toes and seeing if they were, you know, and we all do this, he goes, we all do this. And, and it's the fact that we all do it, that that's his thing. Right? Sure. His broad yeah. observations that everyone, and the people were really, it was very, he's very, very funny and it was very, very funny. I couldn't talk about that. I would, I'd die of boredom, you know. I mean, just <laughs> but when I was younger, I would have done anything at all. Anything to any get a laugh. Any material to get a laugh. Yes. Because material okay. is like gold dust. Jesus. <laughs> It's a McIntyre fan. <laughs> <I'm> very angry. <laughs> but the, shoe, the buying shoes material was genius. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I, mean, I don't want to single out Michael McIntyre. I've never met Michael McIntyre. And I know that he gets stick off other comedians. Sure. And I'm certainly not giving him stick. It's just, a, it's kind of an interesting thing about the preferences. Yes, you do have to make choices, don't you, about yeah. the sort of thing you want to talk about. Or maybe you don't make choices so much as they're instinctual and they're completely obvious to you. Yeah, or you just find... I mean, some things you wish would work and they don't. You think, oh, I can't do that really because it doesn't get a laugh, you know. But, I mean, I suppose if I wrote my show and then just presented it without it being so dependent on an audience working with an audience, it would be a different show. Mm -hmm. But I've never been able to really do that. I'm a mm -hmm. bit of a crap writer, really, as is proven by the amount of sitcom scripts I've had sent back to me. <laughs> um, Plastic surgery. People will look back at plastic surgery at the turn of the century and laugh at the primitive lunacy of it. The moulding clinic. This is a plastic surgery clinic in mm -hmm. uh, Spain. They don't explode on planes, but that's small consolation. <laughs> the stitching underneath and the scarring. Very off-putting in porn. <laughs> when you fly, you have an option to offset your carbon emissions with a donation. With porn, could you not offset your emissions, in quotes, with donations to those affected by people trafficking? <laughs> <laughs> Edgy. Right? Those were my notes. Okay. And then And then do you do you highlight the that, stuff that's worked? That kills that routine now. Okay. <laughs> it's not actually in my show in okay. Edinburgh because the show there's not enough time. So it's safe it for next year. No, no, it's in the tour show. It's in okay, the long I understand. Show. Yes, yes. Um I mean I might do it here later in the run. I'm not doing it at the moment. One of the problems I have now being forty six is I can't actually remember my act um, there's another routine here about oh this was this is, see I thought this was funny I, I wear fake tan but only under my clothes <laughs> take me home you won't be disappointed do you remember that girl who worked on the show really funny who was a very beautiful girl yeah. who was one little part of the production team uh, there were many very attractive yeah, people yeah but there was one in, one in particular who okay. I thought was so fit it was ridiculous <laughs> Oh, I think I know the one you mean. Yeah. yeah. I'm married. She was married. You know, it was never going to happen. But one night in Pontypreeth, <laughs> I said to her, I wear, I wear fake tan. We saw all these Welsh girls walking past with fake tan on. Yeah. And I said, I wear fake tan, but only under my clothes. And she pissed herself laughing. And I thought, 
I must say that to people. (laughs) 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 And I haven't done it. Um, There's a story about going to Vesuvius on a school trip and we walked across um, a sulphur crust over a volcanic kind of lake Mm-hmm. And they took school parties across this thing, even though in some places it had fallen through. And how nowadays that wouldn't happen because of health and safety. But in those days, all they said to you was, walk in pairs, don't jump up and down. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, would you... O'Keefe was the ringleader. What you need to know about O'Keefe was that he was a fucking idiot. <laughs> he w- I googled O'Keefe, no sign of him, no surprise there, he'll be dead. <laughs> and those were the notes. Anyway, the stuff about O'Keefe never worked. But the stuff about the health and safety and the volcano and the difference between then and now, that did work. Yes, so okay. that's in. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's, well, that's, that's <laughs> the know. science of doing it, isn't it? <clears throat> Would you, just to, to pick as an example, the thing you were saying about, uh, about your friend saying the coaches, mm. you know, oh, as a coach is ready. Um, what's, do you have a, like a plan of what you will do with that other than say it, improvise it on stage and see how it goes and then repeat that process? That's one where I think I'm going to have to fit that in somewhere. Okay. And some of them are routines where you think that's going to be a story that's going to work. And some of them you think that's funny, but it's not enough on its own. Because I'm not a gag person. Sure. And how do you segue into that? Mm -hmm. How do you go from one thing into, so I've got to have a routine about football or coaches or people doing great accents accents or Germany or something. Yeah, okay. Then I watch this, there's a fantastic documentary on recently called The Tube about the London Underground. Mm -hmm. And there were two ticket inspectors on that. They went round as a pair, two women. They went round as a pair. And one of them, if she f- met a foreign person who, ha- who hadn't got a ticket, she would start speaking to them in English, but with their accent. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, my colleagues laugh at me, but I find it's effective, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they showed her with this Chinese woman going, you have no ticket. Oh, my God. <clears throat> You must buy ticket. Where is? You pay penalty fare now. <laughs> and the woman from being completely not understanding suddenly burst into tears and go, I have no ticket. I'm like <laughs> And me and my wife were saying, we, have, we laugh more at that than any. I mean, I do, I do think that most of the comedy on the television is piss poor I really do but the tone of the documentaries are hysterical right? yeah. and this was hysterically <laughs> funny and so then we just sat doing you know the jokes that you can't do you know mm-hmm. we can't you're not allowed to do accents <laughs> on stage you're you not know. allowed to do Chinese you're allowed to do accents you can't even refer to the fact that there are other countries exist sure you know without so going racist racist <laughs> I'm not a racist <laughs> right it's not right but every time we saw someone you know Someone Italians or whatever. They're going, you don't have a ticket. Where's your ticket? <laughs> so, so all right, that's funny. Sure. So if I do that, then I've got a way to do the German bit. Gotcha. I can do the... Okay. Has he got this? <laughs> sure. Did you realise you did that in the German accent? He goes, did I? And <laughs> so part of our culture. It's like DNA now. We're, like, we're born with it. Like a yeah. dog is born with walking around in circles before it lies down for sleep because they used to do that in the long grass. Okay. We've got the German accent. I'm actually now trying new material with yes, you. Yes, I noticed, yeah. <laughs> See if this is... Cause it's only, we it's might all, be on to something. This is, this is the process. <laughs> do you ever approach it from the other way around? Do you ever think to yourself, like with the stuff you said, there was some more emotional stuff, stuff about your family. Mm. Does that start from pre-existing notes of things you remember being funny or ideas you've had about being funny? Or do you ever start thinking, I'd like to write some material about a sibling, say, and go, okay, I, I want to do that. I've, I've got a need to express something about that. So I'm going to approach that from, from a different angle and try and think of funny things about it rather than starting with the funny. No. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, I've never done that. I mean, I know, I know comedians do do that. Mm-hmm. I know you could theoretically sit down with a bit of paper and write Christmas at the top and then go, okay, what about Christmas makes me laugh? 
um, family anecdotes. One of the things I noticed when I started out was that everyone in those days, a lot of people did topical material or news-based material. So I'm mm. difficult this difficult. I'll put this microphone too low down. And my Pilates teacher would tell me that I must sit up more. <laughs> <laughs> um, there we are. That's better. <laughs> it looks ridiculous, though, doesn't it? But it to me. Uh, and I would... Uh, do topical material. And then I would turn up at a comedy club and find that you'd have to say to people, what have you got on Nigel Lawson, or what he said this week, or what have you got about Kinnock or whatever it is. And I found that if I talked about my granny's knitting, mm -hmm. nobody was doing that stuff. And that became habitual. Talking about my life and my things that happened to me became mm. the thing. So if I was doing Christmas, I would do, it would be about our Christmases. Yes, I As a kid, my Christmases, my, how we were at Christmas. It wouldn't be funny things you can say about Silent Night or... Sure. Wrapping presents or general observations. Okay. So all of the stuff that I do is, always comes from somewhere in my actual life. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think, oh, no, this is, I'm going to talk about my family. I really want to get into that. That's not how it works at all. I mean, okay. I mentioned my, my mother dying at one point, And I don't know why, really. I mean, I look through these notes. It's not in here. You know, there's 11, 12 pages of notes here, and it's not in here, that stuff. Uh, it, it would have come just because it, it came out during a show. It would have come because mm. I was telling a story. Um, I talk about this shop there where I grew up called Shatins. And it was actually called Jatins. And I, I, I actually, and I talk about how, how hilarious we found that when we were kids. That was a lie. We didn't find it hilarious at all. No one found it hilarious. It was called Jatins. <laughs> it never came up. I don't think, t shit wasn't a widely used word in the 70s. Sure. And shat, I don't think it was even invented. <laughs> but now, shat, people say, I shat myself all the time. No yeah. one said that when I was a kid. Um, so Shatins now is funny. So I, I pretend that it was also funny then. <laughs> and that, I talk about that, and then I talked, and then I kind of talk about how many of my clothes were actually shatting. And I talk about soiling myself, and, and that, I'm pretty sure, was because I was uh, having uh, emotional issues after losing my mother a few years previously. And, and that, then you're into something. Yes. And okay. whether, whether you can still keep the laughs coming while you're talking about this stuff, which to me is quite, as obviously very personal, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that out in the audience, there are people who've lost their mothers, who've lost parents when they were young, or they've got, you know, I mentioned one, the illness that my grandfather had when he was old. I know that people have got that going yeah. on. If you talk about your life and your stories and your things, things that are important to you that matter, then they're going to chime with people in the audience. And, that, and, it, and then you're into... Yes. Eddie, Eddie is, I'll just say, then you're into the mother load. You know? Okay. You're cracked into something that you can really get a lot from. Sure. Um, it means more to you to talk about it. It means more to them to hear it. And it means that you've released a lot of material, that you've unlocked material. And you only get there by really exploring and probing and things that matter to you or you think are either you think are very, very funny, but you must persuade them that they are funny. Yes. Or that you really matter. And then you're into... A world, and then, and I can't access that with a blank piece of paper where I say, right, let's do jokes about buying shoes, you know, or something. You know, it's just, it's not. You're not going to get into yourself mm -hmm. and who you are that way. Mm -hmm. um, you may make people really laugh, but that's just my process. And I used to, I used to love watching um, Bob Mortimer on stage with Vic Reeves. I used to love watching Harry Hill. And the, because their stuff was absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. I mean, nonsense. And I, I saw Vic and Bob in the pub. They used to do their gig in, and they did a quiz one night. And I went. I've been down there the year before, and it had been a bit rubbish. And Bob wasn't on stage. Vic was on stage, and he was a bit of a knob as a compare because he thought all the acts were rubbish, and he didn't, <laughs> didn't hide it. It's <laughs> 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 a bit of a knob, if he's honest, I suppose. Uh, and then the next year, Bob was on stage with him. And they said, oh, no, we're doing a quiz. And they got a woman up and a man up, and they, he flirted with the woman and was rude to the man. And then they said, and then they asked some questions, and no one knew what the answers were. And then they turned to the audience and said, what's the score? And they all went, one all, the whole room. And, it, and, it, and then he had a heart attack. And I thought, well, how do they know that? Oh, it happens every week. And the prize is, and it was a five-litre water container with the top cut off, filled with potatoes with a biro sellotape. <laughs> and they presented the prize. 
to the audience who just roared with laughter and cut the back. I'm thinking, who would think to cut the top off a five-liter water <laughs> container and fill it with potatoes and sellotape a biro to oh, it yeah. and present that as a prize? How can somebody do that and the audience not just stare at them and, and go to a different club the following week? You know, but that, uh, that's the sort of thing I used to like because I could never do that myself. Yes. You know, but my fellow observational comedians, uh, I used to develop a loathing for, and uh, this is because my therapist later taught me, um, or I learned through contact with my therapist, uh, was because the people you hate are the ones who remind you of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got issues, uh, you know, with self-esteem. Okay. okay. <laughs> and interestingly, but just going back to, to Vic and Bob, apparently from what little I know of their process, they would probably have spent a, co- a good couple of hours arguing over whether it should be a biro or a toothbrush. I so think that's the thing. They, they, that has a certain honesty to it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that what they used to do, Bob would sit at the side of the stage with scraps of paper and he'd pass them to Vic, you know, and I used to watch that. Those scraps of paper would be very interesting to get hold of. Yes. Um, but, but just the general... Vic's character, Vic Reeves, the entertainer, was there, ready. And, and he had tapped into the mother loads. He was just yes. funny as himself, much like Steve First was funny as Lenny Beige. Yes. Lenny Beige was just funny, just being there. And uh, it was a larger-than-life showbiz entertainer type character. But then Vic would sing a song. He's quite a good singer, Vic. And then he would fall over. (laughs) And Bob would go, Are you all right, Vic? (laughs) Are you okay, Vic? And he'd be going, I've fallen, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) And the music's still playing, you know. And he'd go, Can you get up, Vic? I think I can get up, Bob. Oh dear! <laughs> Happy days. <laughs> so, so as someone who just to bring this back to you, uh, Alan, as yeah. someone who writes uh, honestly, as someone who writes autobiographically, is there? I mean, you said earlier on this thing that you you're not above altering details of the past, like you know the Shatins thing. We all found that was funny at the time mm. to make it work better or to get you closer to that motherlode moment. Mm. Um, is it all rooted in truth? I mean, what's the what's the relationship between a thing happening. Do you ever say this happened to me when it actually happened to someone else? Do you ever use those little... Occasionally, kind of... but I don't like doing that. Okay. But sometimes I do. Or sometimes, like I tell a story about going to Hong Kong on a holiday and uh, we went on a bus trip, tourist bus trip, and the bloke said, In Hong Kong, we eat everything, everything! <laughs> 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 What's the only thing with four legs we don't eat in Hong Kong? Table! Ha <laughs> <laughs> What is the only thing with two wings we don't eat? Plane! <laughs> like this, right? And that was me and my sister going, stopping in Hong Kong on the way back from visiting my aunt, my mum's sister and my mum's mum, uh, who lived in Adelaide. It was a very important, very emotional trip for us to do that. I've never talked about that trip because I can't find the funny in there. I okay. can't find the funny in my grand. Well, Grand had a nervous breakdown and emigrated after she lost her daughter to leukemia, and, her, and then her husband died, and all this happened, and this, and we lost, we lost my mum, we lost three grandparents, and my other grandparent had a nervous breakdown, all in a space of about five years when I was okay. at primary school. It was fucking awful, right? Mm. You know, and it was, it was bleak, 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 and uh, and some of it I'm into, and some of it I just can't access it for comedy, mm-hmm. and I think I don't know whether I want to or whether there is anything, uh, but anyway, that thing that happened in Hong Kong happened on the way back from that trip and I change it and say pretend that it happened last year when me and my wife were on holiday okay. things like that I change but even that little thing I think I don't want to change it I don't want to change it it's not true not true yes um, okay. Lee Corns is a brilliant stand up and he used to go I went to the fish and chip shop didn't don't like chips don't like fish <laughs> and a bloke said to me he didn't there was no one there because I wasn't even there <laughs> and he, he was deconstructing that yes. lying process 25 years ago you know? yes yes so lastly, um, I was going to sort of ask for questions from the audience, but uh, I feel we might be, if there's any burning ones, we can maybe cover one, but we've sort of got to finish quite quickly. So this gentleman went to your show last night, and on the mention of the death of your mother, the audience went very quiet. What was the second half of the question? Yeah. <laughs> Did I feel it? Yeah. Did you feel it? Yes, yeah. and you know it's going to happen too. And the thing is about doing the hour-long show is that I have to get to that quite early. Um, whereas normally I would, as I said before, I would take longer to get to that. Um, 
once they've gone quiet on a subject, you've got to pull them out of there quick. It's a comedy show. Uh, it's not a play. I mean, I think theatre people have it so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How could you sit there and write bleak, miserable stuff and just leave it at that? Yeah. <laughs> and then they give each other awards for it. And I, think, I remember watching The English Patient, right? John Ronson gave an interview once with someone who said to him, would you ever change anything about your life? And they meant fundamentally, you know. And he said, if I could live my life again, I'd probably do without the English patient. <laughs> and, the, and the person was really annoyed. That's not what I mean. Be serious. And he said, no, I am being serious. That was the th that's what came to mind. And, and I was thinking the same thing. Why would you write that miserable bastard story about the bloke in the cave and he's died? The woman's got a broken leg and he crashes and he's in the Burns unit and they're in love and they can't get to each other and there are Nazis everywhere. When you're typing that out, you've got a single thought for the people who are going to watch this? <laughs> God, a lie. Anyway, rest his, God rest his soul, Anthony Minkella has yeah. long since passed away. But that I would, if he were here now, I would tell him off and not at least put in one joke in. <laughs> so, yeah, get that moment and get that moment of... of but it's... Imp I like it. I mean, people are coming to me and saying, oh, you're talking about your dead mother. I'm not really. She only comes up once in the hour. And she only comes up because it, it went that way. But what it's a sign of is I'm now, I'm 46, and I'm all right talking about the stuff that went on. I'm not all right talking about all of it. Mm -hmm. And there's stuff that went on with my dad that I will talk about one day, mm -hmm. but not while he's alive, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, I'm okay with it. I don't mind them going quiet, but I do not want it to be miserable. Mm. <laughs> We were hoping there for a sentence with which we could wrap things up. I do not want it to be miserable. Seems reasonable <laughs> under the circumstances. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Would you please join me in thanking Mr. Alan Davis? <laughs> Thanks, Thank mate. You. Cheers. <laughs> So thanks to Alan, thanks to 2Entertain, thanks to Blinkertron, and remember, if you have five years or so under your belt and you'd like to be introduced to my beautiful daughter, all you need to do is ask. Speak to you soon. Mm -hmm.